Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Thank you listeners for tuning in. My name is Dr Moto. With me in the studio today are the expert team members, Panel Beater and Cyber Sue. And I have a couple of very, very distinguished and excellent guests with me for the mo- this morning's show, who I will go on to introduce in just a moment. Rather than presenting today's show from uh, our studio in Brunswick, in fact, we are actually presenting from the Sunshine Coast this morning. In fact, we're sitting on the hills of the Sunshine Coast. We're looking out into the distance over the rainforest, and I can see the high-rises of Maruchidor there in um, the horizon. We are on the Sunshine Coast because we are on a um, long Around Australia mental health charity motorcycle ride. The ride will go for another six weeks. Um, I will be riding for another week and then heading back to Melbourne, but Cyber Sue, of course, is carrying on and doing a lap around Australia, in the meantime, providing mental health education and health, well, provision, really, to uh, some of the regional communities in regional Queensland. Cyber Sue, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing and why we're here? Good morning, Moto. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be doing the show remotely here today. Um, yeah, we're, um, for me, I'm on day 10 of 55 days around Australia. Um, and Wednesday, we hit the cattle stations. We meet our um, first cattle station, Isaac Downs, I believe, just out of Longreach. And um, yeah, looking forward to that. Getting, looking forward to getting to the heart of Australia. How did the ride come about? Well, anyone who was listening to radiotherapy a couple of months ago would have heard Dr. Joe Dunn speaking. Um, he um, He's a psychiatrist in Sydney. He's a Kiwi originally. And he was on his bike and he realised that he wanted to combine his two passions of motorbike riding and mental health and trying to do something perhaps good through his passion. And he started the, he started the group. Australia-wide is the group. We've got a group in Victoria and all over the show. And... Um, it's good for our own mental health as well. That's what I would say. Would you agree, Mojo? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. How many how many motorcycles will we expect to see on the roads, cruising across the uh, Malabar, going from Mount Isa to Longreach, braving the elements of the Queensland outback? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we've had people coming and going, but I think there's about 12, 12 or so who are doing the full lap. Few will be dropped off in Darwin because unfortunately some people have to go back to work. Um, but yeah, there's maybe ten of us going all the way around. Um, yeah. And I believe there's some special work being carried out in some of these very, very remote cattle mm. stations and ranches. Is that correct? Well, that's right. So we've we've always um, had this philosophy of it's about using the motorbikes as a conduit to talking about mental health and making it okay to talk about how you're travelling. Um, and so in the cattle stations, we do simple health checks, blood pressure and um, blood sugar, and use it as a way to start chatting to people. Um, and if there's some kind of evident struggles, then there's psychologists and psychiatrists with the group as well who'll take the conversation a little deeper. Yes, and destigmatizing mental health, which absolutely at the best of times is always hard to talk about, especially when you are in a pretty isolated regional community, I'd imagine. That's exactly right. And 
you know, this just makes it okay to chat. And it's great. I think it's great for people to see men just talking openly. Yeah. Wonderful. Such a great cause. Speaking of great causes, of course, this is the first radiotherapy show of May. And I, want, and I just want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank all the subscribers out there who participated in April Amnesty. Thank you for your support and uh, donations and subscriptions. It is with your kindness and generosity that the show, as well as the station, can keep going. Okay, on to a bit of news now before I introduce the guests. I will present a, relatively quickly a, a paper that was published in Lancet Psychiatry back on the 6th of April, so a very, very reputable um, scientific journal in the field of psychiatry who reported on the neurological and psychiatric outcomes in survivors of COVID-19 um, up to six months. And this, the, the main uh, body of this work is the sheer numbers that they were able to, um, the sheer um, data they were able to collect. They reported on the neurological and psychiatric outcomes in 236,000 survivors of COVID-19. It is a UK-based study. And what they did was they followed patients who have had diagnoses of COVID-19 um, or a positive test for SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and matched them to control cohorts. A brief summary is that uh, the suspected incidence of neurological and psychiatric sequelae or negative outcomes of these sufferers were higher than their uh, age and demographic matched cohorts in various different uh, conditions, whether it be um, um, hemorrhages in the brain, um, other neurological conditions, um, uh, mood and psychiatric problems, which are unfortunately all not particularly good news. But um, this is a significant landmark study in that for the first time, it's substantially uh, reported on the outcomes of um, the long-term outcomes of um, COVID-19 uh, sufferers, um, and surely it would go on to inform um, practice and uh, um, establishment of health and support and treatment measures. Panel Beta, I believe you had some news in relation to COVID-19 as well? I did, uh, Moto. Something caught my eye um, recently. There was a little bit of media uh, here in Melbourne talking about um, the impact of COVID on our prison system and uh, the Victorian state opposition was uh, having a crack at the current government and making claims about um, prisoners' sentences getting a bit lighter or there will be uh, earlier releases. And I, I went and looked into that and indeed it seems that the average stay has has declined. Um, but uh, there is some logic to all of this. Um, I went to I went and checked um, the, the state of uh, covid in Australian prisons, and I'm really pleased to say that there aren't, um, just as we, uh, in Victoria, and uh, that there isn't, just isn't, just as there isn't on the outside. But it's far from the case in the United States. Um, and I picked up a uh, an article in the New, New England Journal of Medicine 
um, just recently published, and it's quite striking. I'll be brief, but I just want to point to it because it is so striking. Um, for context, we're talking about the United States, which many people will know already has a massively disproportionate number of the world's prisoners. 25%, one in every four prisoners on the planet are in the United States, um, the land of the free. Um but it only has like you know four percent of the global population, right? So we're we're already looking at a uh, an overstretched system, uh, massive disproportion, um, and uh, by race as well, of course. And uh, prisons, no surprise, um, are, are a hotbed for transmission of um, of you know colds and flus in the best of days. And now with COVID, that's um, that's really underlined. So the um, the authors in this uh, journal article are calling for decarceration, and they're making the claim uh, on a couple of grounds. Of course, um, on the grounds of. Um, uh, well-being of the prisoners, but interestingly, the claim uh, for decarceration is a broader health, um, a broader public health matter. They point out that um, there are about 2.3 million incarcerated people. 2.3 million people. There are 420,000 guards and 11 million jail admissions and releases per year. So that story tells us about a churn. That tells us about people coming in and out of a very high-risk environment. So their claim is that it's actually in the best interests of broader public health that we decarcerate, well, in the United States, decarcerate as many um, uh, prisoners as possible so that they reduce the uh, likelihood of transmission within the jail system and... Um, and then um, upon release, uh, reduce the risk there. Of course, they're not necessarily calling for, um, you know, um, the the pardon of any crimes. They're still saying things like uh, house arrest and and other kind of measures can be can be put in place. Um, but with a with a reproduction rate of eight point four four. Right, and uh, we were talking alarm bells uh, in Victoria here when it was down around uh, 1.52. So at a reproduction rate of 8.44, they've certainly got a case. Yes, I just thought I'd pass on that through, uh, Dr. Moto. Very interesting, very um, different perspective, isn't it? Really is, um, really is. Obviously, you had some interesting perspectives to share with us as well. Well, I guess I was, given that we are in, uh, moving into regional Australia, we've got Dr. Clive and Brett here today. I did a little bit of research into, um, I, I read into the Rural Health Alliance and Australia Institute of Health and Welfare and the Productivity Commission report to find a little bit of background on mental health in regional versus uh, metro Australia. So I thought I'd just share that with us as a bit of a baseline passion with Brett and Dr. Clive. So... I mean, I think that most of us know that the more remote we are, the more prone we are to injury rates, hospitalisations, death, chronic diseases, alcohol and drug use. Um, the, the, these rates increase the further we go out in Australia. But interestingly, the prevalence of mental health issues is one of the few illnesses that doesn't change. And um, it's the same whether you're in the city or in rural areas. So then I was really curious because why is that? that um, hospitalisations for mental health issues, self-harm and suicide do still go up when we're out in the country if the prevalence rates aren't higher. Um, and then I was also quite curious because I learned that the um, life satisfaction surveys indicate that in small country towns, people have better life 
satisfaction reports, um, better interconnectedness between people and social cohesion and so on. So the suicide rates are up. Why is that? And is it because of the lack of access to services? And, you know, again, we're going to hear from our experts in a minute. Um, interestingly enough, mental health nurses, when you're looking at per 100,000 people, the moment you go into outer regional areas, you're dropping down to half the numbers that you have in the city. And then the number of psychiatrists drops from 13 to, down to a mere four. And that's just in the outer regional before you get remote areas. And so I guess my question that we might address is what should we be expecting? You know, should we be expecting the same level of mental health services out in the country um, compared to the city um, in the practical confines of tyranny of distance? And, of course, being side of Sue, is, my question is, um, is telehealth an option? Is it, a, is, it, is it a useful tool in the toolbox? Um, or are we hanging too much on that? Um, so that's my little update for us. I love how you're leaving us on that <laughs> on that nice edge, that cliffhanger of um, questions related to regional mental health provision and um, the state of uh, mental health in regional areas. Um, I can't wait to um, dive into our interview with a couple of uh, very distinguished guests with um, oodles of experience in this area. And in, and in fact, combined five decades worth of experience working in mental health in regional areas. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It gives me great pleasure this morning to introduce our two studio guests. Sitting on the left of me is Brett Heslop, who is a service director for the Sunshine Coast Region Area Mental Health Services. Brett brings to us 22 years of experience as a psychiatric nurse and now, of course, in leadership and management. He has long-standing interests in community-based mental health and bringing mental health care to regional communities. And I understand he has had a lot of experience in this regard working at various regional communities com communities around Australia. How are you, Brett? I'm well, thank you, Dr. Miley, and thank you for the opportunity to come along tonight. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And to the right of me, is Dr. Clive. Dr. Clive is a senior psychiatrist in, on the Sunshine Coast and a long-term good friend. Clive has been a psychiatrist for 32 years now, I believe. And uh, other than um, fixing all the problems of the world, Clive has interests as an adult psychiatrist and um, nowadays more also in service provision and uh, um, governance. How are you, Clive? Um, I'm well, Dr. Mardo, thank you very much. And uh, yes, I graduated in psychiatry before you were born. Uh, I'm not going to give away my age, but I would say that's a wrong assertion. Well, um, I might uh, um, start by asking our guests some questions just so the listeners can get a sense of who they are. Maybe we'll start with you, Brett. Brett, tell us a little bit about yourself. What drew you to mental health? Uh, I suppose um, for me personally, I uh, was a mature age nursing student some years ago and the opportunity um, to undertake postgrad or graduate studies in nursing, but particularly mental health um, tweaked my interest, I think. Um, I have my own um, contact with the lived experience. My dad suffered from mental illness and I suppose that kind of contributes to how you shape your thinking um, as you 
get older and develop a career. Um, for myself, um, I came um, as a graduate nurse, um, a generalist nurse, and then broached out into the specialty of mental health. Um, I suppose one of the things that really attracted me to mental health was the concept of holistic care and working with people holistically um, comparatively to working within a generalised hospital setting and particularly working or having the opportunity to work in community settings, um, um, supporting people in their own environment um, is incredibly satisfying, I think. And Brett, give us a bit of a distillation of your career. Where have you worked and in what contexts, what settings? I've worked um, across a variety of settings. And um, Did you promise yourself 20... A nurse and a graduate nurse, you tend to start in those acute mental health services um, and hospital services. I've worked across emergency departments. I've worked within a forensic service and court liaison services. Had a lot of experience in crisis teams and working in partnership with um, ambulance and police services, really to try and support people that are in crisis within community. I've had exposure um, to Victoria, New South Wales, 10 years in Western Australia. Um, I started my career in Queensland and I've um, returned to Queensland in the last four years. Um, so you came back to Queensland four years ago and when were you last here? I left Queensland in 2007 um, and spent the majority of that time in Western Australia. I have, um, as a nurse and will always identify as a nurse, I have worked agency across Australia and also a little bit of agency overseas. So um, I think the variety um, certainly gives you an appreciation of some of the challenges that um, not one location experience. Um, we're all experiencing the same challenges in relation to supporting and supporting people that identify as having mental ill health. And of course, we're presenting this morning's show not from the safe confines of the Brunswick studio in Melbourne, but in fact, we're broadcasting from the Sunshine Coast. So I think it's only right that we pay homage to uh, the uh, landscape, the mental health landscape here in um, uh, Sunshine Coast, Queensland. Brett, I'd be very interested to hear from you whether there's been a contrast in the last, what, 14 years since leaving this area of the world and then coming back to this area of the world, what have you observed? Um, I suppose I've always I've been a favourite of working in Queensland because I've always felt um, not dissimilar from Victoria that services have been quite contemporary. I think um, the biggest change for me personally, I think is we're an ageing population as a workforce and that I suppose poses multiple challenges for us to provide or to ensure that we provide the best care for people, but also the, the changing demographic and cohort of people that we're working with that have mental ill health, particularly the increasing prevalence of substance use, misuse, particularly the illicit substance misuse. Um, it complicates um, treatment and care for people um, across the regions, and I think we um, have work to do um, to, I suppose, consolidate a workforce that has that specialty skill set within that dual diagnosis. And by that, I mean people that experience men mental ill health, but also people that are, um, have a substance use um, um, issue. This might be a very, very difficult question to answer, but 
given the blue sky view, of course, we're just for the sake of the listeners. In fact, we're sitting here on the Sunshine Coast, looking out in the distance at the high rises of Maruchido, and it is absolutely pouring down. It is pouring down with rain. It's been pouring down for the last three days. So uh, <laughs> I, I have to use this saying then, with your blue sky view, Brett, how can this problem be solved? How can this be best managed if resources were not a constraint whatsoever? I think um, in line with sort of national strategy and statewide sort of strategy, the focus of um, delivering services to people at home, supporting people in that community setting as opposed to hospitalising people. Um, we all know um, when we're sick that the, the place we want to be is at home um, with family, with significant others and supports. Um, we want the ability to have accessibility to services um, easily. And I think um, today's conversation, when we think about the contrast with regional areas, um, it'll be interesting to make those comparisons. Um, the tyranny of distance, um, as was commented on by CyberSU a moment ago, um, is real. Um, regional and remote areas um, do have lots of challenge um, in relation to accessibility and equity of access um, to mental health services. So you would think, particularly in the regional remote areas, community-based care is a better care provision model? Absolutely. And I think um, you don't have a lot of alternative options in That's right. community and regional settings. You're reliant on a regional hospital. Um, you're reliant on a team that are not necessarily mental health experts, um, but you're also relying on your primary health care providers, such as your GPs and those regional centres. Um, and it's also about providing support to that group of health practitioners to make the best decisions in relation to um, people that attend um, for consults with themselves. So coming back to that blue sky view, the ideal utopian view, if you'd like, if mental health care in regional areas can be best provided in the community setting, um, you spoke about the scourge of um, substance use and the importance of dual diagnosis trained clinicians. You spoke about uh, bottlenecks in terms of workforce and sustainability of uh, the workforce. I suppose my question is, are you gaining much traction? Not, not just for you, you yourself, but is the region, is the service, um, is the, the state health department gaining much traction in implementing this model that can um, be more equitable and more accessible? Well, I think from a Queensland perspective, um, there's certainly acknowledgement um, that the challenges are there for us. Um, I think it's acknowledged that we need more infrastructure and more resourcing sort of targeting those rural and regional areas. I think um, we can acknowledge that and we can have funding for that. The big challenge for us is to attract and retain that expertise and those workforce in those regional areas. Um, again, the community are a different population group to those that live in metropolitan areas. We've got people that are miners that are fly in, fly out. We have um, agriculture and farming within those areas. We see high unemployment rates. And we all know that blokes are blokes and generally don't have discussions with um, their GP, let alone a friend. So I think um, one of the biggest um, positive blue sky horizon would really about um, have that conversation and I think what we don't do well is we don't engage um, the community 
Um, and I think the community are disenfranchised um, with the services that they've received, perhaps over long periods of time. And I think we're now seeing that voice and we're hearing that voice. I think also the non-government component and the beneficence, the, the voluntary groups such as Sites on Bikes, such as Beyond Blue, such as the REUOK movement, um, it's about starting that conversation. And as Cyber Sue commented on, um, a group of people, mental health experts coming to a cattle station or a community that's remote or rural, um, it's a big attraction seeing a group of motorcyclists. It opens the door to engage people um, in a conversation. I think for ourselves, in my experience, having had um, an opportunity, a privilege to have been involved with Sykes on Bikes, um, the, the magnetic effect that a group of motorcyclists has mm. on a community when you roll into town. It's um, quite a sight to behold, isn't it? And, and interestingly, it's an incredibly rewarding experience as a clinician um, because often coming from those metropolitan services, you don't have the opportunity um, to engage um, with people that work in cattle stations that possibly haven't been to a GP for a number of years, let alone had a conversation about how they really feel. Thanks very much, Brett. And again, I really appreciate your insights. Um, there are lots more questions I want to ask you, but I would also like to, at this point, bring our other guests into the conversation. So just by way of introduction, sitting next to me is a good friend and a senior experienced psychiatrist, Dr. Clyde, who has worked in this area with skin in the game, stomping the pavement, as we say, um, in treating, assessing and treating uh, mental illnesses for the past 32 years. Clive, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Dr. Mano. It's great to have you on the show, finally. Well, it's been a long, long journey getting here. You've come all the way from Melbourne, and I know one of the criteria for joining the group today was that you needed to own a motorcycle. So I do understand that yesterday we did go to many dealerships and I tried out a few bikes and um, saw a couple that are probably going to put a deposit on. <laughs> but couldn't quite get you to sign the check. Well, the problem I had was that the um, salesman said I could sit on any of the bikes and the first one had an alarm that went off and the second one had already been sold. So, so I couldn't get on any of the bikes there. It was nonetheless, nonetheless a worthy effort. Um, we would love to see you on Sykes on Bikes. We would love to um, see you joining the cause and going around and um, uh, lowering the stigma associated with mental illnesses and bringing psychoeducation to um, some more regional and remote communities. But in the meantime, thank you for being on the show. I'll ask you the same question, Clive. What, what got you into mental health? Well, I guess I probably had the opposite experience of Brett because I went straight into medicine straight out of school. I was 17 and then I graduated when I was 23 and um, I really had very little understanding of psychiatry as a young doctor. I went to work in a day hospital, which I think really just confused me about the real needs those patients had. But then I went back to work in the same setting about three or four years later and then it clicked with me that there were many people there who really required quite intensive assistance and I could um, in some way make a difference in those people's health. Looking back now or thinking, uh, reflecting now, Clive, was there a particular, maybe a patient encounter or um, a particular ward round or conversation with a senior uh, supervisor or a consultant at the time that really spurred your interest in mental health? I think there are probably many of them and many encounters with patients who were very 
much in need of assistance. So I think that uh, I was in fact training for general practice. I'd completed uh, all of that training, but I ended up uh, entering field of psychiatry. Sue. So, Clive, I, you know, with this great 50 years worth of experience, which you don't completely own yourself, but what changes have you seen in that time in mental health? When I first worked in medicine, there were still large institutions in Queensland. One of them was Walston Park, one of them was um, uh, Bailey Henderson in Toowoomba, and the other one was Moss McGall in uh, North Queensland. Those. Can you just tell us a little bit about these services? Of course, we're um, thinking, I'm thinking for our Melbourne audience who might not be familiar with some of these landmarks. Okay, so Walston Park had been there for over a century. Uh, it housed more than 750 um, inpatients. It really had its own uh, industry in terms of its own farm, a golf course, and for many people, they would um, perhaps potentially live the rest of their life there. There was a facility in Toowoomba called Bailey Henderson and for North Queensland there was a facility called Mossman Hall and the um, uh, epicentre of psychiatric care over many decades was surrounding those facilities. In fact when I first graduated as a doctor there were in fact no community services at all, zero. Gosh, yeah, it should. And uh, I did come to the Sunshine Coast in 1989. There'd only been an inpatient facility there for two years. Prior to that, I used to work in a clinic in Brisbane where all the patients from the Sunshine Coast used to get on the train to come down to the outpatient clinic there that was 100 kilometres away. So have you seen a big shift in that time between the hospital and community care by the same things? I think that um, most people would rather be looked after in the community if that's possible. I think there have been a number of things that have made it a little bit um, better to provide community care, even things as simple as providing um, the, the staff with cars. Um, when I first came here, we had uh, two cars, we had six staff. So if you wanted to go out and see someone, you had to join the queue and um, maybe you wouldn't get the car for the day. So, yeah, say a motorbike. A motorbike, yes. <laughs> there, there are services... Um, Certainly the Queensland Ambulance Service and um, New South Wales that do use motorcycles. Uh, even the police service up here has motorcycles as well. I have to ask this question. What was it like working at some place like Walston Park? What, what was it like working in an institution where there were 750 patients? Can you describe a, a typical day for our listeners? Getting to work, what was it like? Well, I can remember some very memorable patients. In fact, one who stole my colleague's motorcycle, which was the CB100. Um, it had done 99,000 miles. He was insistent on getting it up to 100,000. Suddenly found that the motorcycle had been stolen because the, the you didn't need a key to start it. You just needed a screwdriver. Um, there were many people there who had already spent um, 10, 20, 30 years there and potentially might have spent the rest of their life there had there not been a process of deinstitutionalisation. So I think the quality of life for people uh, became more normalised as they moved back into the community. I think that was in many ways a good thing. Can I ask a question um, with this move to community and more of an engagement in the family? Have you seen a shift in the sense of responsibility or burden on families and is there support available for families in their important role in this? I guess the flip side of people um, no longer having as much access to inpatient care has been that there's been a lot more 
uh, a lot more involvement, family members, uh, a lot of need to uh, provide education and support to those people. I think that's occurring more freely now. It certainly wasn't a strong feature of the model of care that I um, originally saw. I think also that there's a, a lot of uh, changes that have happened in terms of um, some of the treatments, a lot of medication that's uh, better tolerated and perhaps um, has fewer side effects. And um, also I think that um, uh, there's a lot more uh, systemic consumer and carer input now. I could say that the consumer and carer input was really, uh, when I first graduated, was all about people complaining about care, not about them being able to contribute and, uh, and, and, and have input into the sort of care that people wanted. I know I sort of keep pressing the rewind button on you, Dr. Clive, and keep wanting to um, hear stories from working in the asylum, so to speak. But even piggybacking what we're talking about, about now in terms of um, consumer involvement, shared decision-making, um, involvement of carers, what was that conversation like when you were working at some place like Walston Park? Um, what, how did that change the dynamics of your interactions with the patients, they, they probably have some idea that they would be spending the rest of their lives there, or they have spent 50 years of their lives there. How, how did that permeate into your um, discussions about clinical decision-making? And what were the discussions with families about these, these decisions and um, the prognosis of their family and loved ones? Well, I can say that I spent a year doing obstetrics before I did psychiatry. And what you noticed about the obstetric wards is how many visitors there were, how many flowers, how many chocolates. Uh, the visitor car parking would be full every day. Uh, the engagement that families had with someone who just had a baby. What I noticed when I went to work at Boston Park is there were many people who had no visitors at all. Mm -hmm. And many people who had completely lost contact with their families simply because of the the circumstances of their, uh, their long hospitalisation and, and really a system that didn't seem to want to engage with the families. It was certainly seemed that engaging with the family seemed like an added burden, uh, wasn't wasn't primary focus of, of the care at that time. So are we talking when families get to the, they, they arrived at the hospital, park their cars, get to the front entrance, they'd be turned away? I don't think they'd be turned away. I think that they, um, they were being encouraged but they, they certainly didn't seem to participate much in some of the decision-making. And some of that decision-making needed to be about how to return the people to the community. I think that has changed a lot. And when did Wollstone Park close its doors? It hasn't really closed its doors. It's just become a different sort of facility, um, which um, doesn't have the same number of patients. Um, still has a golf course, um, pretty good golf course. Uh, still trains people. Uh, it was, in fact, for me, a very good place to work because I enjoyed working in the places where it didn't matter how ill you were, um, you would get looked after for as long as it took and whatever it took. And, and that was certainly something for me that I found uh, very, very rewarding. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We are broadcasting today's show from the Sunshine Coast and it is still raining. It has not stopped raining for three days. Why do they call it the Sunshine Coast, Clive? 
because the sun always shines, but you do need to understand, Dr. Moto and Cyber Sue, that you brought the weather with you from Melbourne. We do not get this kind of weather down in Melbourne. We'd love a bit of this rain down there. <laughs> I, I think that was a rhetorical. I, I think that was a rhetorical taunt. I could see that from a mile away. Good comeback. Speaking of uh, comebacks, Dr. Clive, who is of course a senior psychiatrist with more than thirty years' experience working in mental health, um, you have you had a question for us Victorians, I believe. Well, I just wanted to ask about the recently released findings of the Royal Commission into Mental Health Services in Victoria. Can I ask you, Dr. Modo, um, do you think that it's going to change anything? The short version is yes, because I'm an eternal optimist um, and also a realist in that there has been so many cogent findings and recommendations and I emphasize the word cogent and that it would just be nonsensical to not at least give it a good hard crack. Um, of course, you know, a lot of the um, recommendations can be interpreted as rather overarching motherhood statements, if you'd like, you know, that don't necessarily go into the specifics. You know, an example might be to uh, continually evolve and provide quality care you know, and it raises the question of where one starts. And it's certainly something that I believe all health services, not just Victorian mental health services, but it's something that all health services have been striving to do. Um, but, you know, we have to start somewhere. And with that impetus or that momentum behind us, um, I do believe that uh, things will change. It can take time, you know, but as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. And I'd agree with your comments, Dr. Modo. Um, I think the... Royal Commission report provides the foundation for us to step forward. I do think that that report doesn't identify um, really any anything that's a particular deficit that all states aren't experiencing. I think the other document that's worthy of noting is the Australian Government Productivity Commission report on mental health that was released in June last year. That report that report, I think, in, in partnership with the Royal Commission report, really does identify the challenges ahead of us. Um, I think it's a good start. Um, will we be sitting here um, in five years' time um, reflecting on that report and having same sort of commentary that we have today? I'm probably more of an optimist and think that we won't or see an improvement, particularly across the, the regional and community areas. Yes, no, well put. Um, I think we have to start somewhere. And uh, I know that the report pointed out to, you know, several areas of deficit and uh, several shortcomings, which were realistic reflections of um, where some of the bottlenecks um, or the, uh, the deficits might be. Um, but if we can start addressing them systematically, hopefully it'll also be a, a model um, for um, other services, maybe in other states and territories um, and in other jurisdictions as well, like they can learn from our experience. You know, I'm not claiming that we'll get things right the first time around, um, but mistakes are um, often more valuable learning lessons than successes. And, and I would agree with that. And I think we could probably remove the three of the Royal Commission report and the Queensland on that and we have similar challenges. Yes, yes.
Yes, very true. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that uh, <laughs> encouraging comment. I'm sure myself and our Victorian colleagues will um, certainly be um, become very heartened uh, to hear that. So, Brett, we've spoken about a little bit about the, the landscape of um, mental health service provision here in, um, in um, the Sunshine Coast and um, regional Queensland. Where do, you, where do you see things moving forward and what do you consider to be a couple of the biggest challenges in doing your role and, and, and doing your job as the service director? Uh, I think for us, it's um, workforce would be the biggest challenge um, I can see. And I think that that's supported by the relevant reports. Having um, the right skill clinicians, having permanency um, within uh, across those rural areas, but also providing support and education to those primary healthcare providers because we know that we can't provide the same equity of access in real terms um, to what we can within a metropolitan area. An example might be that somebody who's sitting in an emergency department that has a mental health illness that requires some additional support for admission to a hospital, that could be a 300 kilometre, if not further journey. So we consider all the impacts that that has on an individual in relation to isolation from family and the right supports. We also really need to consider the cultural appropriateness of services that are provided across all services. Maybe one more question for you, Brett. So you're about to go on a six-week, seven-week motorcycle trip around Australia promoting mental health. At this stage, and we should check with uh, Brett in two, three months' time, in fact, on the show. At this stage, I'm not saying you have a crystal ball, but what do you think will be one key learning um, that you'll take with you from, you know, from the experience? I, I'm attending part of the ride, um, but I think any learning that the team will take from it is how real people are in regional communities. Um, and how well they are. How real they yeah. are. I think also um, understanding firsthand some of the challenges that people have. And I don't think you can appreciate that until you've had that lived experience. So the exposure across um, Australia with the Sykes on Bikes rotation. I think it's humbling for clinicians that will be working through that and very rewarding. And certainly hope that it helps forge relationships with the local communities, particularly with people living in the local communities with the existing services, um, such as those primary healthcare. Yeah, very well put. Dr. Clive, I'll ask you the same question and when I do I'm drawing from your three decades of experience as a clinical psychiatrist going forward what do you see to be a couple of the main challenges in promoting mental health and accessibility to mental health in this area I would say that we've already made a lot of progress in that direction with the telehealth item numbers that certainly brought people from a distance spectrum Have is uh, more collaboration between the public and the private sectors, particularly in terms of of of, um, of uh, staffing, uh, the doctors, the nurses. There's really no reason that there needs to be a very wide line between those two services. Earlier in my career, those services actually overlapped a lot. Very good summary. 
Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.